Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. On a dark, cold, wintry night, I like nothing more than encasing myself in the hide of a bear that I hunted using my uh, bear hands and then starting a fire using all my enemies before drinking a hot cup of revenge. Uh, But obviously, that's a bit tricky for some of you to do. And I am all about universal ideas that work for everyone. So instead, uh, if you've got a cold bum and seek some comfort for yourself or loved ones with cold bums, then why not head to british-boxers.com for their range of luxury casual wear, what is all made ethically and by properly paying people and doing all the stuff that I wouldn't even have to mention if the world was a better place and everywhere was run by nice types. But it's not, which is why I must seek revenge. Sorry, but... As it is, uh, British Boxers are a great company to support, not just because they're lovely people, but also because their jammies are well nice, as are their nightshirts, undergarmentals, and they've even got a section called Kids and Pets, which obviously sells clothes for kids and pets, not actual. sell kids and pets, like Luckily, by having ears of taste and listening to this podcast, you can get 15% off any purchases at british-boxers.com by using the code PARPOLBRO15! So go do that right now. Or you could hunt a grizzly and destroy a cartel. But I mean, to be honest, it is a lot of work. It's quite tiring. Ethically, very dubious. Maybe just buy some nice PJs instead. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that would only ever support an invasion of your ears by this show. I mean, not by, like, spiders or war. I wouldn't condone that. I'm not an idiot. Oh, no, now I'm thinking about spiders in ears. Ugh, this has gone really wrong. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and this week, as Russian president and water on the knee, but for a face, Vladimir Putin threatens the possibilities of nuclear war. On the plus side, if that did happen, the electromagnetic pulses would knock out the internet, so you wouldn't have to see anyone's hot takes on how, actually, radiation sickness is only as bad as the flu. In the last four days since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began, President and lead singer of the Manic Street Preachers, Vladimir Zelensky, has really moved the goalposts on what it means to be a comedian, his profession before he was elected to lead the country. I mean, he's been defiant in staying in the capital of Kiev and fighting against the onslaught, he's made jokes while doing it, and he's not even complained once about how Russia are actually trying to cancel him. 
I'm both in admiration of him and also, I must admit, I'm a bit thrown as to how the rest of us can begin to provide commentary on the situation when I didn't even do a show in Nottingham on Saturday night because I decided it would be too much effort. The thing is, as we're all aware, um, war, or to call this more correctly what it is, an illegal invasion, isn't really in any way a comedy goldmine that I should be doing a podcast about. I mean, hundreds of Ukrainians have been killed, their homes destroyed and many, many more displaced. And on the other side, thousands of Russian soldiers, young men with inadequate food, armour or equipment have also been killed. In one of those times where you wonder if those who usually cry for the need of a return to national service in Britain just really hate young people and can't quite express that enough by just voting Conservative. Yet side by side with that awful, awful tragedy is humour, for that's where it dwells best. And it'd be remiss not to look at this situation and laugh at Vladimir Putin's failed efforts to capture Ukraine and just find it unbelievably funny. What was, we were assured just a few days ago, a global superpower exerting its might on a smaller nation that wants to retain its independence has become a lot less of a Russian bear and more one of one of those small dogs in a teddy costume spending the whole time uncertain of who it is and exactly where it's meant to be. The man that likes to pose half-naked on a horse to assert his masculinity in a way that's always actually said, I've only had sex with inanimate objects, is now being thwarted by a man who was the dubbed voice for the Ukrainian release of Paddington, a smaller but considerably more popular bear. Ukrainians have fought fiercely and taken back their cities mere hours after Russian forces have entered them, like a very violent version of being outbid on eBay and then returning in the last minute to add 1p and winning. Has Putin completely lost the plot or has he always wanted it to return to that of an 80s action film where the villain is a despotic megalomaniac Russian? It's a very weird angle to call for the denazification of a country that you're illegally invading to capture for your own empire. It's like enforcing a detox on your whole house by insisting they only eat the burgers from your van. It's clear that Russia is weaker now than it was last week with its military power depleted and bank sanctions meaning the ruble is now worth less than one US cent. Still though, Putin will be chuffed at the idea of how many American tourists that could bring in. Maybe they could pop some helter-skelters on the Kremlin and have all visitors greeted by a mascot dressed as a Russian doll who represents the country by starting big but then keeps emerging as a smaller and smaller entity. There have been worldwide protests against the war, including thousands of Russian citizens in St. Petersburg and even previously staunch Putin far-right supporters and different degrees of eroding potatoes, Donald Trump, Marine Le Pen and Viktor Orban have started to think that maybe the horse with the creepy naked man on top was the wrong one to back. So put into a corner of his own making because he's a baby, Putin has resorted to putting his nuclear forces on high alert, which I would have thought they'd have been on anyway knowing who is in charge of them. I mean, if I had to sit at one of those stations, I'd be jumpy every time the phone rang in case, oh shit, it's Vlad and he's been at the vodka again, I'd better call my family first just in case. It seems even threats aren't safe from the need to reboot ideas from 40 years ago. UK Defence Secretary and out-of-date fried egg sweet Ben Wallace says that Putin's nuclear threats are merely a distraction attempt because nothing distracts from a war going badly, like the idea it might go so badly absolutely everyone dies. I wonder if when Ben Wallace accidentally cuts his finger while chopping something to distract himself from the pain, he threatens to saw his own leg off. Some reports suggest that Putin only increased the nuclear alert after hearing comments from Foreign Secretary and what if Niles from Fraser had been embalmed, Liz Truss. In between her various fancy dress costume changes and photo shoots, vacant head for Let so that she supports individuals who might want to go to Ukraine to join an international force to fight, as she's clearly the sort of person who'd see a paramedic treating someone on the street and step in to ask if there's anything she can do, fall over the respirator and then take a selfie holding up a peace sign next to a dying body. This is the UK's response all over, though, helping in the way that causes a greater chance of nuclear war. A first aid kit that doesn't contain anything you need and is so heavy you have to leave behind all the other necessities to take it. 
I mean, compare any of our responses to the rest of the world. The EU have said they'll take in all Ukrainian refugees for three years with no visas or need for asylum. But over here, the Prime Minister and stupid hairy puffin Boris Johnson proudly announced that Ukrainians with relatives who are British nationals can come to the country, but no more due to security reasons. Whose security reasons? Is the Home Office worried that if they let too many people come here, they might report back just how shit it is to absolutely everyone else? Johnson said the UK would not turn our backs in Ukraine's hour of need, but I suppose that's because we have to face them to check their papers and deny them entry, or they might just sneak in. According to the Prime Minister, we're way out in front in our willingness to help refugees, so I guess he means in boats in the channel, telling them to turn back or puncturing their dinghies. The Home Secretary Priti Patel, the only person who would get stronger after an unsuccessful heart transplant, accused Labour's Shadow Secretary and Goron from Breath of the Wild, David Lammy, of posting misinformation for saying the Home Office was still seeking normal visa restrictions to those fleeing Ukraine. She then posted a link to the Home Office guidance that said that's exactly what they were doing. I've no idea which bit she thought was misinformation, but maybe the truth is that visa restrictions are too lax and Patel's gone round saying that unless they want to buy some of the London property the Russian oligarchs will have to give up, then they just can't come in. Home Office Minister and result of a face swap photo between a man and a bollard, Kevin Foster, suggested that one of the routes refugees could take to get UK entry is as a seasonal worker. No, Kevin, you can't do pick your own for people. That's not what it means. MP for Tombridge and Marling, Tom Tugendhat, with his face like a boy scout that just shat behind a tree for the first time and has never felt so alive, suggested that the UK could expel all Russian citizens. Great idea, Tom. Rather than taking refugees, we just get rid of even more people, many of whom may be in the country to also escape Putin's regime. Hey, Tom, why don't we also get rid of anyone who's ever heard of Russia too, or ever been in a rush? What about Ian Rush? Let's kick him out. As clearly, he and the 73,000 Russian citizens in Britain have exactly the same level of complicity as Vladimir Putin's top team. Very weirdly, there's been little said about the Russians in Britain that are connected to Vlad, though, with no sanctions yet on Oligarch and Damien Lewis in a Hall of Mirrors, Oleg Deripaska. But then I guess the last thing the British government needs in the midst of war is to run out of donation funds. Neither has there been any sanctions on Chelsea FC owner and Alan Sugar with Sunstroke, Roman Abramovich, who's managed to hand over the stewardship and care of Chelsea to the club's charitable foundation, and it didn't even have to pick any fruit or anything. He'll still be its owner, though, because the best way for the UK to sanction billionaire allies of Russia is by letting them keep all of their dosh and just have more free time on their hands, too. Ugh, I bet Abramovich is going to go nuts when he realises he can just dine in fancy restaurants and do what he likes without all the football club bother. Yeah, that's going to show him. Football ofs doesn't count, though, anyway, which is why FIFA have ordered the Russian team to keep playing in their World Cup qualifiers, but just without their flag or national anthem and under the name Football Union of Russia so that they sound like a school delegation. Yes, nothing says political statement of solidarity than suggesting they wear a hat and pretend they're someone else entirely. We are against Russia's actions, say FIFA, but uh, for Russia, yeah, they can totally hang out. So far, the boldest move Britain seems to have made in support of Ukraine was when the Prime Minister went to what a Conservative councillor called the front line by visiting an RAF airfield in Oxfordshire. Very, very brave of Boris Johnson to go somewhere so close to war, despite the possibilities of him being in the line of fire from a passing bird and having so few emergency amenities, what with only two pubs in the civil parish. This is what we get in Britain. While Ukraine is bravely led by a comedian, we've got a village idiot in a field. I think the best cherry-picking skill those fleeing war could display is choosing anywhere to go with even an iota more humanity than here. 
Meanwhile, racists are refusing to let war make them complacent as black Indian and Arabic people trying to flee Ukraine are encountering a lot of abuse and difficulties crossing the border. Perhaps the thought is that by leaving only people of colour to the behest of Russian forces, soldiers will be very hard-pressed to think that the place has been Nazified. It's bizarre and depressingly unsurprising that the value of human life still seems to depend on skin colour to so, so many, and in that way I guess Britain suddenly seems a lot less racist as they are equally not letting in anyone regardless. A number of news reporters have declared that the situation in Ukraine is different to the Middle East because it's a civilised country. Yes, that is true, but that's also what happens when you let the West loot a place until it has absolutely no culture left. Just let some American soldiers pop by Ukraine and make things worse, and then let climate change kick in a bit, and I reckon you'll barely be able to tell the difference. In other news, the government have launched a study on the post-Brexit economic benefits of reintroducing imperial units, which I assume are very low as stormtroopers' armour costs a shitload. And government proposals to change student loans mean anyone who achieves lower grades in GCSEs won't be eligible for them, while those that are will still be paying them back for 40 years. This very unfairly targets students who have a poor grasp of English or maths, which is not right as that could mean that Number 10 Communications Department or the Treasury are going to be missing out on their ideal candidates. Hey, 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 uh, this is, uh, as you've noticed, a very brief um, podcast uh, this week, um, not only because, well, uh, there's a war and, and it, it was hard to write about that. Um, I know that sort of in many other wars, comedy has been an important factor, um, but it's usually as a distraction, isn't it? Not just sort of haphazardly making jokes about it and reminding you that lots and lots of people have died. Um, so uh, I've just sort of done a, a brief what I can. I know I've missed out lots of things. Um, also, uh, yeah, this episode is kind of more about the interview that I think is... Um, a really good one and very helpful even though we recorded it last Wednesday and uh, it's probably already slightly out of date um, but also I can't record for long today because it is uh, rather depressingly um, the funeral for my friend this afternoon and I'm going to be there um, it's going to be a, a, an Irish wake event so I will likely be too sad and too drunk to record this later so there is every chance that by the time you hear this absolutely everything in it will be completely irrelevant um, we might be in the midst of nuclear war but hey why don't you let your ears melt to this show i'm not sure that's the best selling tactic i'll think about that anyway um uh before i d- there's very quick bits of admin firstly thank you uh to all of you listening to this i haven't even checked the kofi or the patreon or whatever this week if you've donated thank you absolutely tons it's hugely appreciated um i'm also gonna be mentioning lots of other things you could donate to this week too um one thing actually just to step away from the ukraine situation one thing that i've been highlighted um or alerted to is obviously with everything shit at this side of the world um afghanistan and other crises are largely being ignored um one in particular there is a charity that is fundraising for Afghanistan refugees who are still just being horribly treated by the Home Office um, because I guess they've got to keep up their brand Um, and anyway there's a charity called Azadi who I'll hopefully have on the podcast soon and they have a Just Giving um, at justgiving.com forward slash crowdfunding forward slash Azadi A-Z-A-D-I for Afghans and they are raising money there if you can afford to help out Um, also on a completely different note um Cat Day, who helps out on the show, she has contributed to the uh, su- pseudopod, suedopod, swadu, swadapod, swedopod, um, on the the one that came out uh, last week, the 18th of February. Anyway, check that out. She's written one of the stories on there called Never Enough Pockets. It's absolutely brilliant, slightly scary, um, all very very good, uh, and is to do with the vigil uh, that happened for Sarah Everard. So it has a political tint too. It's very relevant me mentioning this, not just that Cat helps out with this show uh, and all the linear line notes 
that pop up on the website every single week. Um, so go check that out. Right, I, I really I haven't got time to include anything else. So quick, let's get to the interview. Hurry, let's go, go now. <laughs> If you are anything like me, you'll pride yourself on having a semblance of worldly knowledge and then see a situation like the war in Ukraine begin and think, oh God, how did that happen? And then have to Google exactly where Ukraine is and be surprised when it's not exactly the bit you thought it was. It obviously doesn't help that the internet is flooded with 400 reasons as to why this war started, ranging from secret biolabs in Ukraine developing super-strength COVID from the same people who thought COVID wasn't real, making it very confusing as to what it is they're actually concerned about, all the way to how this war was definitely caused by bots or woke culture or worse, woke bots, which is the point when you've realised you've accidentally kicked a link, left Twitter and started reading the wiki page about the Terminator films. With Ukraine, much like, well, any nation in the world, it's not just the here and nows that have got everything to this point, but a long history of borders, invasions and revolutions that you can't really digest properly if all you've seen is a loser from a reality TV show insult Putin using the medium of haiku. Context is, as they say, key, although if you've lost yours, you can't actually use context to unlock your front door, so it's not quite as helpful in that instance. But on this week's show... I decided context was the most important thing. So I spoke to journalist and writer Anna Reid to ask her to explain exactly what we need to know about Ukraine in order to really understand what's going on. Anna was Kiev correspondent for The Economist and Telegraph during the 90s and since then has gone on to write many books about the Slavic and Eastern European region, including Borderland, A Journey Through the History of Ukraine. Anna spent a lot of time in Kiev and had not long returned from there when we spoke. As you'll hear, our conversation ended up being mere hours before Russia invaded. So obviously there are some things that we say that really didn't age well. Um, I'm also aware that there's a comment I make about uh, how Russian people may uh, may not want the war. And I sort of ask if it's to do with sort of ideas about Ukraine, completely forgetting that no, it's because no one really wants war because war is really horrible, as we have seen. It's very upsetting and traumatic. And that's what I should have said. But um, instead you got my... I, I might have said something different if we'd recorded just hours later. Ugh, God, life. Um, anyway, hopefully the rest of the interview will be a very useful insight into a nation that has very sadly had to deal with this far, far too often in its history. Here is Anna. <laughs> Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. Um, I, I'm aware that we cannot fit the entire history of Ukraine into uh, a short interview um, and aware that it's something that you've written about extensively before in, in your book, Borderland. Um, I just wondered, for, my knowledge of the area is is awful, I'm ashamed to say, and I think uh, I hopefully won't speak on behalf of too many of the listeners, but possibly theirs is too. What where do we need to be looking at in history to understand the situation we're in now, to understand why sort of uh, Putin feels so threatened by Ukraine's independence? Um, where where does where did this start? Where did it start? Um, well, you can start right back in the 10th century with Vladimir the Great. Um, but it's probably more useful to start start a bit um, a bit later than that. Uh, basically, uh, Kiev and um the, you know, the Ukraine's capital city, Kiev, that was conquered by Russia in the 1680s. It went to Russia, having been previously part of something called the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which was an enormous, great um, entity. It's one of the sort of great, um, great sort of ghost states of Europe. And then what sort of Western Ukraine, however, um, well, well, first of all, I should say, um, through the through the rest of the 17th and the 18th century, central Ukraine had a good deal of autonomy under something called a hetmanate, the Cossack hetmanate, although it um, came under sort of Russian suzerainty. Western Ukraine, however, remained um, Polish ruled. 
then when Poland itself fell to pieces, it was partitioned in three separate partitions at the end of 18th century, it became, Western Ukraine came under Austro-Hungary. Austria and then later became Austro-Hungary. Um, and then at the end of the First World War, when Poland reappeared on the map and the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed, Western Ukraine went to Poland and also a slice of southern Ukraine to Romania, to newborn Romania, and a little bit of the far west as well, in fact, to Slovakia. And what is now Western Ukraine only became Russian ruled after the Second World War, when Stalin invaded for the first time. It had no history of Russian rule at all before that. Um, however, <laughs> that that is to, to, to taking you through that sort of, you know, there's this whiplash of of borders back and forth, of course, has you know caused a great deal of violence and sort of mass deportations and so on over the over the centuries. Um, and these two facts that most of present-day Ukraine and the fact that Ukraine has been perennially war-torn have been used, they're part of Putin's narrative to say that Ukraine and Ukrainians don't really exist, should not exist. Um, which is complete nonsense. You know, the Ukrainian national movement, the modern Ukrainian national movement, started at the beginning of the 19th century and the 1830s and 40s, same sort of time as the Czech national movement, indeed the modern Irish national movement, um, Romanian national movement, and so on, Zionism, etc. And it became, you know, it started being to start with, it's more focused on language, and it became more political as the century progressed. And so that when the Russian Civil War broke out after the Russian Revolution of 1917, you got a Ukrainian government declared itself in Kiev and only lasted um, less than a year. The, the, the whole area collapsed into chaos and it was swept by White Army, Red Army, Polish Army, various warlords and so on. And then, But the Ukrainians had their own national army as well, which held a good deal of territory for some while before being beaten by the Red Army. Um, so it's a complex history, but it's not very different from lots of other um, countries, you know, around the world. Um, you know, not every country has had statehood for centuries upon centuries. Uh, and, you know, it's Ukrainians view it as quite, a, a, quite an oddity, a missed, a missed chance that you, Ukraine wasn't recognised by the victorious allies at the Paris Peace Conference after the First World War, as were the Central Europeans and the Balts. It's, the, the the wars that I think sort of obviously we most recently remember there was the war in Donbass, um, which happened in twenty fourteen, and is this current situation that we're in now kind of been inevitable since then? Because it feels like obviously Russia's really stepped up things in the last ten sort of fifteen years, especially under Putin, to try and reclaim Ukraine as as part of the Soviet Union. Quite all all through the nineties, it felt very much as though Ukraine and Russia were going to live perfectly happily side by side, and Russia didn't have, you know, great ambitions to rebuild um, its empire, and it was too concentrating on the economy and living standards, and, you know, just Russians were enjoying all sorts of new freedoms for the first time. And that really changed, I'd say, 2004, so four years into, um, well, leaving aside Chechnya, it changed 2004, when uh, Putin tried to put a pro-Russian president into, in, in, into Ukraine um, using rigged elections. Uh, and the, it, was very, it was very blatant, it was very obvious the Ukrainian public, the election, the count had been rigged. And so enormous crowds poured onto the streets. It was called the Orange Revolution. Everyone wore orange hats and ribbons and so on. And uh, to such an extent that the Electoral Commission agreed a rerun um, 
which the pro-European candidate who who Putin had tried to poison um, during the electoral campaign earlier uh, with Ryson. He, he had terrible skin damage as a result, um, Yushchenko. And he then won that election. Um, so that was that was a sort of blow for, for Putin. That was his first attempt to sort of get pulled back Ukraine into the Russian sphere, repulsed. Um, but he then tried again in 2014 after another round of mass protests, the Maidan, started off very peaceful, ended up because of police violence, um, as sort of all out street fighting the last few days. Um, and they, those protests were in protest against a um, the, the president there, Yanukovych, who was basically pro-Russian, but had sort of balanced Russia and the West. He tried to maintain this sort of balancing position. He'd been grotesquely corrupted, stolen billions upon billions from the Treasury. Um, but he he decided at the last minute not to sign a trade agreement with the EU. This was the end of 2013, and to sign one with Russia instead. There were st more student protests to start with. Yan Yanukovych sent his police in to beat up the students, and then the protests turned into these mass protests of um, a million people at weekends, you know, the numbers swelled to taking over the whole, you know, the, much of central Kiev. And um, Ukrainians see that, 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 that was called the Maidan and it, it was became a real mass movement. And you talk to Ukrainians about it now and, you know, people cannot talk about it, remember it without tears coming into their eyes. It was an incredibly um, inspiring um, emotive moment of sort of togetherness and mass, um, sort of mass mobilization for what the Ukrainians call dignity. And it was for, it was definitely pro-Western. You know, there were lots of European, lots of European yellow stars on the blue together with the Ukrainian blue and yellow, um, you know, waving above everybody's heads. But it, the Ukrainians called it a revolution of dignity because it wasn't so much about the geopolitics. It was about, we want our government to treat us decently. We want decent treatment. We want courts which are independent we want police which don't bribe and don't sort of drag our student children away when they peacefully protest um and th there was a massive sort of mobilization around it as well um and you, you sort of people you know providing food and you know the, one of the sort of iconic pictures of this was is sort of is some um, you know middle-aged, very sort of respectably dressed women, sort of you know, in standing in line, passing bricks up to the front where there are barricades, and they're throwing the bricks at the police. Um, then it crossed, it crossed every sort of you know, it brought in every region of Ukraine. It crossed age groups, it crossed um, socioeconomic groups, and it was a real, it was a real patriotic coming together movement moment. Um, it ended when Yanukovych sent snipers, we don't know if it was directly Putin, we don't know still who these snipers were, they were unbadged in black, up to the rooftops around the Maidan Square, and they shot dead nearly 100 protesters. Um, the, the, the protest continued, this didn't disperse the protesters, and at that point Yanukovych lost his nerve and fled to Russia. Um, so again, Putin had been frustrated. And um, well, at that point, he took the opportunity to grab Crimea and Donetsk and Luhansk. But his um, aim of toppling, you know, of putting in, of, of taking control of Kiev itself um, had been frustrated. And basically what he's doing now is, is a replay. He's having another go. It's, uh, 
Yeah, I wanted to ask about Donetsk and Luhansk. And obviously, we're speaking on, on Wednesday, and listeners will be hearing this sort of from next Tuesday onwards. So I, I have no idea what will happen in the interim. Um, and uh, I believe on the news there were sort of talks that they're Russia are operating peacekeeping missions, which I think is, is an interesting use of language. But, but one of the issues this week has been that, that Putin said he wants... Uh, you know, NATO to recognise the independence of Donetsk and Luhansk. And I wanted to ask what the significance of those regions are. You were just mentioning that, that they were they are they were Russian or became Russian. Well, they've been part of in- independent Ukraine since 91, when Ukraine became independent with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and I should stress that when they when Ukraine had its referendum at the end of 91, each separate province of the country had you know, it was decided that each separate province had to vote for for the whole country to become independent. And each separate province did vote for, um, even including Crimea, where the vote was quite narrow. It was like so 55, 45. Um, so there's no I mean, it's it's absolutely not true, as Russia, Russia um, asserts that the Russian speaking eastern regions of the country were, you know, were forcibly made to join Ukraine when it became independent. That's total nonsense. Um, and another point to stress is that the language you speak, if you're Ukrainian, the language you speak doesn't um, doesn't te- te- say anything about who you are, are loyal to. You know, if you're a Russian speaker, it doesn't mean you're loyal to, to Moscow any more than if you're an English speaker and don't speak Gaelic. Um, you know, you're not a proper Irishman. Um, and actually, the majority of Ukrainian soldiers who've died since 2014 along this line of contact in the Donbass, where there's been this continuously this low level shelling. I mean, you know, one, two, three soldiers, people die every week. Um, you know, our, our Russian speakers from the big Russian speaking cities of like Kharkiv and Dnipropetrovsk and Kremenchuk and so on in sort of east central Ukraine. Um, where the, 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 I mean, <sighs> Um, Donetsk and since 2014, these people's republics, Donetsk and Luhansk, they've become, you know, these little sort of zombie pseudo states, you know, not recognized by anybody, you know, the entire, everybody who can, basically everybody young, everybody with even a bit of money is left. Um, You know, there's no economic activity to speak of. I mean, they're just awful places to live. And that um, has, you know, that is well understood. you know, throughout Ukraine. And that, of course, has been another unifying factor. I mean, the aggression itself and the fact that, you know, living under Moscow's rule again has been no bed of roses for anybody. And this includes Crimea as well. I mean, Putin put in, rather like he did in Chechnya, he's put a gangster in charge, Kadyrov. He's done the same in Crimea. He he put a local gangster in charge whose who's nickname is the Goblin, um, who's since been, you know, he and his cronies have since been sort of, you know, expropriating people's businesses, you know, sort of building sort of completely illegally on sort of beautiful bits of the coastline. I mean, they just treat it as a as sort of, you know, their own sort of private property. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So is it, I mean, you know... What is the reason that Putin wants, you know, Ukraine back under Russia? Is it, is it just a power grab? Is it kind of a land grab and a return to kind of Bolshevik Russia? Is, you know, the 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 USSR, or is it? Are are there other issues that have come into play? Because obviously, I've I've read about you know Germany have just uh, halted the Nord Stream two pipeline, and the, the there's fuel that that comes into a big, it plays a big part of it. Is it the sort of threat of NATO? I mean, I'm. I'm very aware this is a very complex situation, but it does feel like reading the news at the moment. A lot of people are saying, "Why is what's the reason for this? What's why is this kicked off now?" Well, you're you're. It's not that. I mean, it's not really very complex. It's um, it's revanchism. It's rebuilding the empire. I mean, there, there's one. I mean, there's one more sort of rational argument to it, which is that for him, Ukraine is a political threat because the more prosperous. Ukraine becomes and it's a proper democracy, you know, quite unlike Russia now. Um, you know, the more the more he presumably fears that his own middle class will start wanting the same freedoms as Ukrainians have. I mean, one one particular thing Ukrainians have got, which likely riles Russians and Russians would dearly love, love to have now, is visa free visa free travel to the Schengen area, and that was granted to them by the. EU in 2017. So now if you've got a Ukrainian passport, you can go no questions asked to Germany, France, Spain, and so on. Um, you know, which is fantastic for them and has been extremely popular. Russians can't do that. For Russians, you've still got this humiliating and incredibly expensive and complicated visa process. Um, so, you know, for for for, Put for Putin, there's, you know, the, Possibly he feels that Ukraine is a threat to himself because his own his own his own people will see fellow Slavs to whom they're culturally close, you know, getting what they haven't got. Um, but if you read the kind of things, you know, if you you read his history essay, for example, he he was published under his name back in July and was the real sort of it was the first smoke signal that something really odd was up with Ukraine. Um, in, in the Kremlin's mind. It was called On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians. He repeated the same themes in his long speech on Monday as well, his address to the nation. And it, it basically argues that, you know, Ukraine is not a real country. Ukrainians are not a distinct nationality, that it talks about the Ukrainian language as being a regional peculiarity. Um, 
and he you know he he wants to grab it back <laughs> it's just a it's a power thing it's this feeling of possessiveness towards ukraine which is sort of inbred it's in it's and it's not only you know it's not only the kremlin it feels that way even good liberal putin hating russians um at least until quite recently um felt that you know, Ukraine was a bit of a joke, you know, it was a bit of an anomaly, it had only sort of come about through sort of historical chance that really, you know, Ukrainians much the same as Russian, all this stuff, which is, which is complete and total nonsense. Um, and, you know, based on nothing, it's all sort of ancestral memory, you know, these are not people who've even visited Ukraine in the last, you know, several decades. Um, but that feeling of ownership still persists. And I think it's, I mean, maybe Putin's putting on his sense of indignation and injury uh, about this, you know, but maybe it's real. It's very hard to tell if he's posturing or if he genuinely feels it. I suspect actually the latter. Which is, is really, I mean, I think that's what makes it sort of so scary that if it's just a paragraph, if it's, if it's not an economical or, or a fuel-based thing, you know, there's no, no. real work around to persuade someone no, that their revisionist no. history is, is wrong. You know, it's it's very hard to, uh, to, to fight against that. That's- that's exactly right. I mean, I've been attending, you know, talked talk to lots of sort of, you know, veteran Kremlin watchers and been to endless, you know, webinars and so on over the last few weeks. And, and nobody can read inside his his mind. I mean, the 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 the, the, the Americans have been um, more alarmist, you know, than the Europeans and the Brits. You know, the Brit the British foreign po- foreign policy and sort of military establishment. They think, or at least thought perhaps until Monday, that, uh, you know, he was still, Putin's still basically the same rational, calculating, cautious fox we know, that he hasn't gone mad after 22 years in power, and he hasn't gone mad after two years in isolation um, with COVID. But, you know... (laughs) I, so, 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 the, the, so the establishment opinion was that he wasn't going to actually invade, and this was indeed a bluff. Um, we'll see how far he goes. Maybe he'll stop stop with these breakaway people's republics inverted commas. You know, maybe he'll try and take a bit more of these, but not that much more. Or maybe he'll go all out for Kiev and Odessa and and so on. Um, you know, all at once. We can't tell. And, and am I right in thinking you've, you've just returned from Kiev fairly recently? You over there fairly recently i was there for a few days a couple of weeks ago so um you know they, they've there's now a um state of emergency um it hasn't actually the law hasn't actually gone through parliament uh so you know the mood now is tense than it was but two weeks ago it was amazingly calm they were the, the, the incredible grace under pressure ukrainians were exhibiting there was no run on the shops there's absolutely no fighting over loo rolls in the supermarkets there was no run on the currency there's no run on the banks um, people weren't sort of heading off to stay with relatives further west. They were just carrying on with their normal lives. Um, I think partly because uh, leaving Kiev would feel like desertion, and also partly um, because partly because you know there's a certain amount of people wanting to not believe it's true, so sort of slightly in denial. So one lovely young uh, programmer, um, I a computer programmer I talked to and he I, I said have you stocked up on candles or pasta or anything and he said no and I said why not and he said because if I have the pile of stuff sitting in sitting looking at me in the corner of my flat I'll have to believe it's true 
you know, I have to believe something might happen and I don't want to have to believe something might happen. So there's a there's a bit of that. that I think that's, um, you know, that's no longer true yeah. now. That's really tough. I, I mean, it, it, I did wonder if there's, uh, you know, that, that, that sort of strange thing where, where they... It's a horrible way to put it, but they must almost be used to a threat from Russia now in, in that how often it is we, we've seen it over the years. And I wonder if that makes it harder to know when when to kind of take They, they say with... that bravely. Yeah. They say that bravely. But to be honest, the war in the Donbass, um, you know, since it sort of since the line of contact uh, sort of became sort of solidified, sort of end of 2015 2016 that kind of thing i mean the fighting died down it's just been this low level shelling to be honest it hasn't affected people's lives at all outside that immediate region um and of course the prospect you know with, with blinken on television telling you that you know putin's game plan is probably to send long distance missiles to various targets in ukraine and aerially aerially bomb and then to send in armor and infantry you know you're suddenly thinking my god you know that's a that's a completely different thing i mean talk talking with talking with friends about it when i when i was there um it felt utterly surreal i mean none nobody could really one can't the whole place is so normal and lovely that you, you can't get your head around it it felt like sort of you know brainstorming plots for some war movie or something you know it just felt completely ridiculous you know sort of fantasy thing um and and i think it takes takes a, a people a while to get their heads around the idea that it's it's really really real yeah yeah it must be absolutely terrifying i mean, it, I mean even I, obviously very different from, from over here but even just sort of seeing the headlines suddenly escalate in the last few days has been quite shocking where it really has gone from i think as you said it, it felt like the u.s were being slightly alarmist last year and the war could be immediately think is it, we haven't no you know nothing's going on and then very suddenly it, it seemed to turn which is is worrying and I, I wonder sort of what your what your thoughts on what you know the, the what we've had this week are sanctions on 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 Russian investors and, and banks in the UK but you know is that is that the way forward what 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 is the way of dealing with this when as we said it seems to be sort of largely a kind of Russian you know power grab well, I think we need to be really tough uh, I don't think the sanctions thus far are nearly tough enough um you know that the the list of banks is very short the list of individuals is very short so far britain hasn't even um hasn't even outlawed the issuing of russian government bonds on the london markets let alone the trading of them we ought to be banning both the issuing and the trading um the eu and the us have banned the issuing at least uh you know th things like the things like then there are lots of there are lots of sort of um you know non-directly government things that ought to be doing like uefa is it really going to hold the champions league final in st petersburg in may and that seems to me you know Bizarre. absolutely incomprehensible um and, and and those kind of things i think will actually get through to the russian public um much more you know what what being isolated from the rest you know the western world the, the developed world um will mean for them you know than these these rather sort of distant things about you know four or five um oligarchs who live in a different world anyway and um, i think we need to really really be um you know we need to get going i mean there needs to be massive political will there needs to be proper political will behind it because there's a you know there's a lot of financial interests at stake the whole you know our legal profession does a lot of russian work um banks ditto 
you know state agents you know and that uh, you know we you 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 your, your, your listeners will know all this but i think we need to sort of we need to really get serious about digging out all the dirty money and the and the kremlin and kremlin affiliated money and and what can um I mean, it's uh you know we don't know what's going to happen next as we're speaking but what can listeners do is there anything that we can do for for ukrainian people at the moment is there any way uh, to help just as us sort of members of the public in the UK? Or is this, I mean, this is pretty much up to just sort of government and international decisions now. Well, there certainly are. There are um, various wonderful organisations helping with displaced people within Ukraine, of which there are a million and a half people who've left um, these people's republics, these Russian-occupied people's republics, you know, back several years ago, now now living elsewhere in Ukraine. That'd be fantastic. Um, I think, you know, it's going to be a long effort I think even if Putin, uh, I'm afraid to say, I don't think it looks like it will, he will, but even if he de-escalated now, Ukraine's going to need a lot of help. Um, it's going to need financial help because it will have it will have badly injured the economy. Um, and it's going to need, you know, its, it's defence capability is going to need building up um, either way. I mean, more arms. We need to give them more arms. I mean, this is, it sounds extraordinary, doesn't it, that we should be talking about this. But, you know, if if, if Putin has still got a rational part of him, you know, he, he is going to be tossing up the body bags and the more uh, javelins and so on that the Ukrainians have, the more costly it's going to be for the Russian army. Uh, I mean, I mean, well, the other thing we haven't touched on is how awful this all is for Russia. And I, I also love Russian, worked a lot in Russia. And, you know, for ordinary Russians, this is a disaster. This is, you know, their, their, their president has gone AWOL. Um, you know, whether they'll be able to, um, you know, protest much about it, I don't know. You know, there, there are hundreds of political prisoners in Russia already left over from the old um, pro-democracy process of 2011 to 12. Um, you know anything 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 um western governments can do to sort of reach you know cross the kremlin's head to the russian public in general should be continued um you know and mul- multiplied so so just to sort of because you you're saying earlier that even sort of liberal russians sort of didn't think of ukraine as a as a proper place or a proper country but um, this this you know, with this That's not different being from thinking is it the war aspect? Yeah, exactly. Right? People people take people feel condescending towards Ukraine. They don't take it seriously, but they don't want to actually go to war. Sure. That makes that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um and, and so well, thank you so much for coming on and explaining. Uh I, I, incredibly helpful. And you did it so concisely, which is just amazing. I think I've been looking through so many newspaper uh, well uh, articles recently going, I still can't quite wrap my head around this, but thank you. Um and I just wanted to ask the, the final question, which is what I ask all uh, guests on this show, which is that uh, apart from yourself uh, and your books, um who who else would you recommend that listeners read or, or websites that they visit for really good information on on Ukraine and, and in fact Eastern? In Europe you know who are the people that you go to absolutely um there's an excellent English language online newspaper called the Kiev Independent um there's also um one called Ukraine World again that's got an English language version they're both are both dual language and on um Russian news there's Medusa M-E-D-U-Z-A which is based offshore. I think it's in I think it's in Latvia, Latvia or Estonia. Um, it you know it originally was a Moscow paper and it got driven 
offshore. And that, again, has got Russian language and English language versions. All of those are excellent. Thank you loads to Anna for being on the podcast. Um, As I mentioned before, and you could tell throughout, that conversation was in fact hours before Russia started their invasion of Ukraine on Wednesday, which is pretty disturbing to think about how at just 2pm that afternoon we were saying we had no idea of what might happen or what could happen and then it all did. Um, Anna obviously very much knows her stuff and I would highly recommend her books and perhaps most key to current times is the book Borderland, A Journey Through the History of Ukraine. Um, I'll pop a link to that in the podcast blurb as well as her other books too. Um, Anna also writes articles about Eastern Europe and particularly Ukraine and Russia for a number of publications. After we spoke, Anna kindly sent through a list of charities too, as recommended by her Ukrainian friends, um, who she thought would be good support in current times. So I'll give those a very quick read now. And again, I'll pop all those links into the podcast blurb. Um, Although if you're on social media, you've probably seen a ton of these shared already. Um, So Ukrainian charities to support are Voices of Children, which provides psychological support to children with war trauma. They are at voices.org.ua forward slash en. Um, Lifeline Ukraine is a suicide prevention charity for war veterans, and they're at lifelineukraine.com forward slash en uh, vostok sos provides assistance to internationally displaced people um and then uh, I, i'm very wary of promoting anything that assists in military gear uh, as i'm one of them weirdo pacifists you've heard about yeah i don't want nuclear war what a weirdo um but as anna mentioned in that interview it is grim that it's necessary but uh, it is that ukraine have the right equipment to fight back so without judgment um come back alive uh, and no i won't attempt the ukrainian name that's a kiev based charity that provides ukraine's armed forces with equipment software personal body protection and things like that um then in the uk there is the british ukrainian aid which supports victims of the ongoing war orphan children um displaced people the wounded etc and um the association of ukrainians in Great Britain, uh, their London branch, they are fundraising for humanitarian aid at a link that I'll put in the podcast blurb too. And um, also, also, I have to thank the Ukrainian Institute in London who put me in touch with Anna um, and they have posted a link of places to support. Um, they posted that on all their social media as well. So I'll pop that in there as well. <laughs> And that is all for this week's uh, Slightly Brief, Partly Political Broadcast podcast, your final one-stop audio shop for all things the violent fate of humanity and occasional 90s Welsh indie band references. Um, If this has filled the comedic political hole in your life in a satisfying way, then do consider recommending its ways to other humans, donating to the Kofi or Patreon sites, and maybe even popping a nice five-star review somewhere people might read it but also might not scroll down that far. Jeku Yuta Acast, my brother last skeptic and Cat Day. And this will be back next week when Putin complains that he only lost due to cancel culture and how you can't say anything anymore. He pulls back his forces from Ukraine but regrows the Russian economy by releasing a series of Netflix specials. Do Pabachanya! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.